Welcome to MAP, the bi-weekly market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. Mars makes it as easy as possible for you to get your pharmaceutical, medtech or digital health product to the market and of course get the price it deserves. My name is Stefan Walzer, I'm the founder of Mars and a health economist by training and working in the fields of market access, reimbursement, pricing and health economics already since 2004. Additionally, I founded the consultancy P&N Pricing and Negotiations in Healthcare based in Toronto, Canada, which supports companies and individuals globally by coaching, simulations and training, especially on negotiations. This service is including our innovative virtual reality simulation program and is part of the Negotiation Lab. And now let's learn about the market access and reimbursement systems around the globe. So welcome, Jamie. Thanks a lot for accepting also the opportunity speaking to you here on the podcast on market access. Today, a bit more broader. I think uh, today the market access terminology we're using here is including the regulatory world. But before maybe jumping to the details and to the content, I think it would be great if you could very quickly introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, well, thank you, Stefan, for having me uh on this podcast, it's it's always fun to reconnect with with former colleagues. Um, yeah, so so I'm Jamie Cross. I'm vice president of regulatory affairs at a San Francisco based um, cancer immunotherapy uh, startup company. We're about sixty employees, um, and I've been in the industry, gosh, about twenty years, I'd say, working primarily in regulatory affairs, but I've also worked in in drug safety. But I started my career at the Food and Drug Administration in Washington, D.C. Um, so I've seen both the regulator side as well as the regulated side of uh, biotech and pharma. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And I think that's also why we both thought that I think this discussion could be really valuable. I think for let's say any kind of aspect of market access. But I think maybe one step after the other, and you mentioned already let's say the FDA and the focus probably today also a bit more on the US. Could you quickly introduce and explain people, maybe not that familiar as well with the FDA work and the responsibility, how especially industry could go and get into a cooperation, probably more a collaboration with the FDA? What is really needed there? Yeah, sure. Um, it's a good question uh, uh, because if you decide to, formally submit an application to run a clinical trial or seek marketing authorization with the FDA. It's quite quite a bit of work, and there are a few, few ingredients or a few steps to get started. The first is uh, to identify a U.S. agent who can act on behalf of a foreign client. So, so the FDA requires a local representative based in the U.S. Um, that's, that's quite familiar with, uh, quite similar to other um, countries. And then, and so it, it's important to take the time to find a reputable regulatory consulting group to represent your company should you be located outside of the United States. The second thing is also to, to perhaps in consultation with, with a local representative to ensure you understand what part of the FDA has jurisdiction of your product. So 
is your product an in vitro diagnostic? Is it a gene therapy, a small molecule, a biologic? Could it be a combination of, of things? And this is important because these different product classes are regulated by different parts of the agency. Um, just as, for instance, the EMA has a CHMP for human medicines, a veterinary uh, committee for veterinary medicines, and, and so on, you wouldn't want to direct your attention and effort to the wrong part of the agency. And then the third thing is, is maybe from a practical standpoint, if, if you're wanting to start communication with the FDA, which is overwhelmingly done by, by email, you, you need to have an application number assigned, uh, which which in essence serves as a, a reference number. So typically the first step uh, before you do anything with the FDA is, is to establish what they call a pre-IND number. If you wanted to meet with the FDA before you actually undertake clinical testing in the U.S., you would need this. And the FDA website has more information on how, how to go about establishing a pre-IND number and then, of course, after you can ultimately submit an IND. And an IND, for those who don't know, is an investigational new drug application. It's somewhat similar to a CTA application, XUS. The difference is, is with an IND, you can have multiple clinical trials under a single application number, um, as opposed to having an individual CTA number for each individual trial you do. So, so in a way, it streamlines things a bit. And, and uh, the, the, the last thing I was just going to say on, on sort of the practicalities of getting set up with, with the FDA is that unlike the CTA application process in Europe, um, the IND application itself is, is quite extensive. It's not uncommon for an IND application to exceed 5,000 pages. And if you had a compound with quite complex manufacturing and, and complex clinical protocol, such as a cell or gene therapy, your application could be 10,000 pages. So it's, it's really important to under, to have that agreement with, with the agency ahead of, of filing an application, what their expectations are in terms of content and, um, you know, key features of the study design and so on. Uh, otherwise, otherwise, you could be do, <laughs> preparing quite a bit of, of work uh, uh, just to get the application in uh, with perhaps a result you're not seeking. So, so having that conversation is important. And then I would say because it's a complex application, there's a lot of thought that needs to be put into the planning. I mean, it's not uncommon for it to take six six months to pull mm -hmm. together an application just to start clinical testing. And while I know your audience is probably more focused on market access and more interested in NDAs and BLAs, you can imagine that for marketing authorization, that application gets only uh, more, more complex. And so in my experience, you start planning for submitting a, a marketing application um, one and a half to two years in advance of the submission date. Got you, got you. I mean, it, I think you mentioned already quite a lot of, let's say, complexities, especially maybe for people who are not that familiar with it. You also mentioned that, you know, the, the let's say putting an application together could easily, let's say, take up to six months. I mean, when would you recommend to start at least the internal planning, including maybe the first kind of contact with the FDA, meaning, uh, you know, just to get to know, obviously, what to put together and, and also in which ways, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of this depends on what level of internal expertise your organization mm -hmm. has. Um, so um, in my most recent experience, I, I initiated a sort of formal contact with the agency about one and a half years prior to uh, starting a first in human study for for a compound. And so at the time we we had that contact, we already had either initiated or completed the non-clinical testing that was required to uh, successfully uh, submit uh, an IND application to start human testing. So what I mean by that is, is I, I decided that it was important to meet with the FDA about a year and a half ahead of, of clinical testing. But perhaps a year and a half before that, we were already uh, running you know, animal studies to support that clinical testing. So the time horizon can be quite long. Obviously, for instance, if you worked in a company where you licensed in an asset that has already been in the clinic and had previously um, been filed under an IND with the, with the FDA, it may just be a matter of requesting a new IND number and submitting a new protocol. And there aren't a lot of questions about the risks of, of the product and the manufacturing. So so every situation will be, of course, uh, uh, quite uh unique um but but i would err on on the side of caution and, and plan years in advance so so maybe moving a bit further i mean as you said i think um most of our listeners are probably especially interested around the commercialization the approval by the fda etc so we had let's say the start of that whole endeavor in a way so obviously everybody's very interested in the drivers for such a successful regulatory process down to the approval in the US. Anything what you can share out of your experience? Yeah, so so um, we already talked about planning. So planning is is critical. Um, that's that's why most companies have a regulatory department to to think think ahead about <laughs> what hoops you have to jump through uh, along the way. And and so I, I often think that the the planning just pays off uh, at the end, um, making sure you have all your ducks in a row, so to speak. Um, and ensuring ensuring you have the right resources, experienced uh, staff and consultants, um, and so on. Um, I, I'd say the other thing to consider is taking the time to anticipate what are the questions regulators are going to ask. Um, perhaps this is similar on the market access side. You you want to think in advance of having an interaction with 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 payer payer organizations about what are the sorts of things they're going to ask for and just building that into your work work plan um, on the regulatory side we we typically um, without even thinking about it you know we know we're going to get questions about did you select the right patient population for your registrational study um, uh, ensuring there's agreement on the right endpoints, um, how much safety <clears throat> data that you will need uh, on your patients. So, so all those are, are important and part of the planning process uh, and, and your development strategy. Uh, the next the next thing I think that is absolutely critical is is building trust. Um, does your does your company have a reputation for cutting corners or submitting sloppy documents that require a lot of attention within the agency to sort sort information out because it's not well organized or not well thought through? Do they have confidence that you're putting patients 
first in, um, you know, when they look at your clinical trial design, do you have the right risk measures and uh, in place, uh, risk mo- patient monitoring and so on. And so, you know, all that is to say trust is really important because it's very hard for the FDA or really any agency to help your organization if they don't feel like they can get on board with what you're trying to accomplish. And, and do they develop that sense of hesitation either through, you know, issues of quality or thoughtfulness um, in the strategy and so on. So it really, it really speaks to the importance of cultivating a relationship with with the agency. And, you know, with that in mind, um, it's important when you're trying to build that or cultivate that relationship to anticipate where the agency, like what the agency is, is thinking about. Um, so I talked about, you know, asking the right questions of your team, like, like, do we have the right endpoints, the right safety, are we collecting the right safety data? So, so the way you do that is, is by putting yourself in the, in the, in the, the the mind of the reviewer going through your your application or your dossier and start asking those questions and one of the things that i think is really fundamental to to being able to do that successfully is to understand that the fda and a lot of agencies think about the end first so we often talk about you know the fda can be very label driven they're trying to understand how is the design of this trial leading to the design of the next trial leading to the design of the registrational trial and how will that then support claims you want to make in the label or the 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 package insert um and so so even in very early stages such as a submission of a first in human study it is quite typical to get feedback from the FDA saying, okay, when this study is completed, we want you to come back and talk to us about X, Y, and Z topics um, ahead of initiating a registrational trial. And so they're already connecting the dots of how A will lead to B to C and so on. And so I think it's really important for, for sponsors or companies to be very mindful of where you want to be with a commercial product launch years and you know years down the road even at the time you're submitting a first in human study and so so for instance right now some hot topics at the agency are dose optimization in oncology i i spend my my days you know thinking about oncology drug development and so even at ind clearance for a first in human study they will come back to you uh, with written feedback saying you know Please come and speak to us to discuss dose selection and how to most um, how to optimally identify the proper dose to take into uh, studies to support commercialization of your product. And so you uh, have to think as a sponsor, how am I going to address those questions that they're going to have for us several years from now? What do I need to do right now? So it's an enormous amount of planning and, and alignment with the agency by just getting into the mindset of those reviewers. And I think that's what makes a good regulatory strategist and a good strategist from really any product development function is, is thinking strategically and thinking ahead. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, thanks a lot for those insights. I mean, we have focused quite a bit on the FDA. And I mean, as you know, we have, especially, let's say, on the payer side, quite complexities also um, but all, not only um, in Europe. So not thinking yet about the payers, but are there any kind of key differences between 
the EMA in Europe and the US FDA, as you have just described, or is it basically the same thing, but just in different, let's say, maybe jurisdictions and legal frames? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I will caveat for your audience that I am not the, the world expert on uh, European regulatory affairs. There are a lot, many more individuals who are, are more qualified than I, but I, I have had some some interactions and, and certainly even just in the product development process, um, done, done quite a bit of um, XUS uh, uh, regulatory activities. And I think one of the key differences between EMA and, and the US FDA relates to, for instance, the, the oversight of clinical development versus marketing authorization. So FDA manages both the INDs under which you file your, your individual clinical protocols and uh, they also oversee review of marketing authorizations or applications such as NDAs and BLAs. On the other hand, as your audience probably knows well, with the EMA and, and CHMP, they handle the review of, of the MAA, but the individual countries um, or member states handle the CTAs. So I think in a way it means the regulatory oversight in the U.S. is a bit more streamlined because mm -hmm. the same therapeutic review division, sometimes even the, the individuals on the review team that assess your IND application for your first inhuman study could in fact be the same one that reviews your licensing application many years later. That's not always the case. Um, sometimes you pivot into a new um, uh indication or therapeutic area with your compound and obviously the oversight and review can change but by and large for instance if you're developing a drug for hematologic malignancy it will be that first in human study will will be reviewed by the same division that would review your your uh, marketing application and that that is quite a a, a powerful um or or unique um uh, feature of the FDA because it allows you to cultivate those relationships that I was talking about earlier and get to know the sort of the philosophy in regulatory review that some of the team members at the FDA might have um, or the philosophy of the division and what some of their concerns are. And I don't know if that necessarily translates on um, you know, with with the competent authorities in different member states within the EU versus the EMA and the rapporteurs that are assigned to review the the, the um, MAA uh, when it's submitted. So, there to me, it seems like there's a little bit of a disconnect. And and also, you know, do you go for national scientific advice in Europe versus get centralized advice um, from uh, from CHMP? You know. These these uh, sort of differences can can you know create regulatory uncertainty in and of themselves, and I think that's a very striking difference between um, regulatory agencies uh, like the FDA in the U.S. versus the EMA in, in Europe. Um, on a on a more technical level, um, the review process is quite different between the EMA and the FDA. Um, uh, when you submit a marketing application in the U.S., the FDA wants all of the source data, all of the non-clinical 
research reports and mice, monkeys, in vitro, et cetera. And with data uh, formatted to a certain specification, they they want a similar level of detail in the manufacturing to support their their inspections. And which which even if facilities are located ex-US, they they can still go and do an ins- a manufacturing inspection. And they want to receive all the clinical study reports for every study done. They want data sets to be provided in a specific uh, format and programmed a certain way. And so, so this to me is is quite striking. It 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 requires an enormous amount of work. But they don't just they don't rely just on summary um, documents that pull together all of the source data. They actually drill down into um, the, the the source data itself. And and one of the things, um, if I can just elaborate for a second, that also makes the FDA unique is they have um, you know it sort of an army of statisticians. And so when they ask for the, the code by which um, source data was was programmed for your pivotal trials, they will reanalyze the source data according to their specifications. They don't ask the sponsor to go redo an analysis. I mean, they might, but they will also rerun the analyses themselves. And that's that's quite unusual compared to most mm. regulatory agencies. So just those are a couple of, of things. And another key key difference uh, is the reviewers in each agency and, and who they, they represent. Um, this this maybe touches a little bit on what I said, but you know, when this when members of the CHMP, you know, specifically the rapporteur and co-rapporteur are assigned as scientific reviewers, they're they're assigned from a member country. They're not from the EMA itself. So those individuals review the application through their perspective, which may be shaped by cultural, medical, um, societal issues in the country they come from, whether it's Spain, Hungary, Sweden, and so on. Uh, with the FDA, this is obviously quite different. Their, their reviewers are all American, and the healthcare policies and issues might be considered more uniform, even if they are there are nonetheless uh, substantial inequities within the U.S. But but in in my view, the, the culture within the FDA tends to differ between uh, the review divisions, and these may be uh, shaped by um, both you know the, the leadership of those divisions as well as sort of the pressing issues within specific therapeutic areas that those divisions represent. So you know some might say one FDA division or therapeutic uh, division or therapeutic area is more open or closed towards a new scientific concept, maybe a new endpoint, let's say, um, whereas another might be more conservative or one may want more safety data typically than another, and that might be an, an artifact of the therapeutic area they represent. But at the end of the day, what I'm getting at is is I think where you where you see differences within the FDA and the review process might be shaped more by therapeutic area, and that's probably true also um, uh, within within EMA. But but I also wonder to what extent the fact that rapporteurs and co-rapporteurs come from different member states, how that actually shapes the review process. And the last thing I was going to say on this is uh, that there are po- there are also policy differences, and maybe we can get into that a bit more later. 
and also um, what what are different trends and areas of focus. For, so, so for instance, in oncology, FDA has historically been quite open to accelerated approval based on a surrogate endpoint reasonably likely to predict clinical benefits such as survival in a cancer patient population with with relapsed or refractory disease. Um, whereas EMA still favors a pivotal trial that uses a, a, a clinical endpoint instead of a surrogate um, and, and prefers randomized controlled data versus single arm data. And so the conditional approval process at EMA, while it exists, has not been as popular, at least in the oncology space, from what I can tell. And I know some of this has to do also with payer considerations, pricing and reimbursement of drugs that go through the conditional approval process. So maybe this is something we can untangle a, a bit more, but the payer environment in the US and the EU are quite different. And so payer pressures on the FDA have been less tans tangible, um, if I could uh, be so bold as to say, compared to payer pressure on, on the EMA. And so, so I think that might be one thing that contributes to um, differences between EMA and FDA. Going back to your original question about about where 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 I see some some differences between the two agencies. Yeah, th thanks a lot for those insights as well. And I mean, you, you're touching base already on a couple of I think also an, an additional kind of uh, important point. I think you you just mentioned the the payer side. And, Submissions obviously always also there, right? So you, you need to have the approval in order to let's say commercialize, but then finally need to find let's say as well the um, the payers in general who would then obviously need to pay for the drugs or the medical devices, etc. I mean, you know, you have worked basically on both sides, um, as you have as well alluded to in your introduction. Is the payer world or just let's say very similar? They're just adding cost there. But at the end of the day, it's more or less the same thing as the regulatory bodies are doing. Maybe even a bit of, let's say, less kind of impact because they are only, let's say, looking on the normally randomized controlled trials or at least the pivotal trials. So is that not more or less the same? They're just wanting to see the data and then just want to discuss and negotiate the prices? Yeah, so I know what you're getting at, and I would I would say no. As, as you know, in, in sort of the field of economics uh, at large, you, you, you typically have to define the perspective when talking about decision making. And regulators and payers represent very different perspectives. And so how, how a regulatory authority, regulatory health authority such as uh, EMA or, or FDA defines quote unquote value is, is different uh, because they're a regulator. Uh, and and that's different from a payer. So so I appreciate you know that you know the idea that maybe the payer world is just adding costs but not doing a whole lot more on top of what the regulatory bodies are doing. But just by virtue of having a different perspective and and how they're 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 tackling issues itself makes makes them different and what they're trying to answer different from a health authority. EMA and FDA are focused primarily on the, the therapeutic or clinical value of a technology at the time uh, that licensing application is, is submitted. And uh, asking questions like, do the benefits outweigh the risks? Are there sufficient underlying data? Is that data of high quality? 
And yes, payers may be asking some of these very same questions, but in a way, it's it's still nonetheless different because because they're trying to they may be asking a question, but for a different reason. Um, so, for a new gene therapy to treat an ultra rare disease, a a health authority like the EMA or FDA would be focusing their assessment on the clinical benefits and risks, the manufacturing, the data integrity. The payer is placing that therapeutic benefit risk assessment into a larger context of whether whether society or the payer can afford it, what's the budget impact, how do we maximize the value of the technology through efficient access schemes, and so on. I think a great example of that is is when um, these very effective drugs to treat chronic hepatitis C were licensed by regulators about a decade or so ago. They they were extremely effective at eradicating the virus um, and really curing patients, essentially. But but with the prevalence of the disease, there there was a real question about whether payers could afford to to reimburse. Um, these medications um, because of the high cost, high financial cost um, to society, given the high cost of the, of the treatment. And so the payers were necessary to untangle a whole host of questions after uh, agencies like FDA and EMA uh, determined that, yes, indeed, there is enormous therapeutic um, value due to the positive benefit risk. So, so there is just one example of, of, of the difference between the two types of, of agencies. And then I think we need to, to not forget the, the role of regulators in reviewing um, and approving generic and biosimilar products. Um, that's, that's another topic, an important one, um, and, and maybe could be the topic of an entire uh, podcast episode. <laughs> um, but but, but um, I, mentioned, I mentioned this because, because here's an entire class of compounds where the regulatory review is focused less on benefit risk and and more on product quality and exposure such as PKPD. And yet that pathway is critical, that regulatory pathway is critical to ensuring that the coverage period for high cost innovators lasts only as long as they have exclusivity. So so maybe I can rephrase this another way. Without this regulatory pathway um, created for biosimilars and generics by health authorities, the the benefit that payers stand to gain from having access to lower cost pro- products wouldn't, wouldn't be there. Um, and yet the availability of this entire class of drugs is, is because the FDA is more and, and other agencies are more focused um, not on clinical risk benefit, but more on bioequivalence and, and assessing PKPD and manufacturing. And so, so depending even on the product class, there, there can be a disparity between um, the, the regulatory agency and the payer agency um, that further distinguishes their role in the overall process of getting medicines to patients. And and then just to maybe elaborate on your question a bit more, because I, I sensed in your question um, some concern about the efficiency with which these two types of agencies work together, whether it be in the U.S. or Europe. And I think it's 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 quite a large large topic. Um, 
for discussion. In the U.S., you have a single regulatory authority, the FDA, for a single country of 330 million people, but a highly fractured payer environment due to healthcare privatization, except for the elderly, and we can talk more about Medicare. Um, In the EU, you have a market representing over 400 million people, and yet you are challenged with having these many member states each with a different payer model from, from the next. And so, so I think to, to get to your question about the, the role of the payer versus the regulator and redundancy, it, it is shaped in part by just the, the framework. You know, do you have one country, one, one regulator, one payer? Do you have one region made up of 20 plus countries, almost 30 countries, and each with their own payer, but a single product regulator? This then sort of further complicates at the question. Um, but you could say it does create quite a bit of job security for health economists to sort out. That is true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in the end, uh, th- there's a level of interdependence tendency here between regulators and payers, such, the, such that the payers are not essentially doing the same thing, but they, they really are reliant on regulators for, for working with um, sponsors or companies to generate the right evidence um, uh, to, to first achieve regulatory approval, but then hopefully have the right evidence as well to make pricing and reimbursement um, decisions. So, so this notion of evidence generation, as well as sort of risk-benefit assessment, end up being pretty hot topics and maybe something we, we want to circle back to. Absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, you, you mentioned already, let's say, the, um, I think also the, the difference, but also the, let's say, intercorrelation in a way between uh, the payers and also sometimes the regulators. I mean, I have heard, and I'm not an, an expert in the US, but I have heard about the certain kind of relationships between Medicare and FDA. Could you also allude a bit on that one? What is behind that? Yeah, so I actually think this is very much related to what I was just talking about in response to your last question, which is it's, it's a relationship built around um, evidence generation. So the FDA needs evidence to to make a benefit risk uh, assessment or risk benefit assessment. These terms flip flop. Uh, uh, whereas uh, Center for Medicare uh, needs evidence to make a coverage or reimbursement decision, and that's probably familiar to folks. You know, wherever they are, there's a the regulator and a payer, and, and they they look at evidence a, a little bit differently. Procedurally, they they have a memorandum of understanding between FDA and Medicare to be able to share information and resources if needed to promote public health, um, which is what their mission is. And, and, you know, they are each headed by appointees of the president of the United States, and each agency covers a wide range of technologies, not only pharma and biotech, but diagnostics and medical equipment. And FDA's jurisdiction actually goes even further into veterinary medicine, cosmetics, uh, food, and so on. But but historically speaking, um, going back to evidence generation, um, historically speaking, the evidence by which Medicare makes coverage determin- determinations has been based largely on the evidence that FDA reviews 
to make a licensing decision of a new technology to, in the first place. So the evidence, whether it's a randomized or single arm study, a placebo or active controlled study and so on, is negotiated during the product life cycle between the sponsor and the FDA. And um, interestingly, uh, Medicare isn't a participant in those discussions, despite having to make a national coverage decision after FDA approval on those on those data, and, and not just a coverage decision, but doing an assessment and so on that leads to a coverage decision. And so, where where sometimes there can be uh, a, a bit of a strain is when Medicare realizes that the evidence to support regulatory approval by the FDA is, is maybe insufficient insufficient to reimburse a technology for the Medicare eligible population. And so, so that's where sometimes you see a bit of uh, news coverage, for instance, the new products approved by the FDA, but there's question about whether it will be reimbursed under Medicare for, for the elderly population in the U.S., um, and, and just to sort of get at the, the, a little bit into the history behind this. So, so in 2006, um, Medicare issued a, a coverage with evidence development pathway. It was subsequently revised in 2014. But, but what this did was establish a pathway where technologies with insufficiently persuasive evidence to justify coverage nationally for the Medicare population, which maybe your listeners know is, is individuals uh, over the age of 65 in, in the United States. But, but it created a pathway whereby patients could be covered provided they participated in a clinical trial or in a registry with the goal of generating um, more robust data, outcomes data, for example, on safety and efficacy. And, and this pathway has not been used for a lot of products. It's quite a short, short list, um, but there are some examples like cochlear implants uh, for hearing, allogeneic stem cell therapies, and, and others. And if you fast forward from 2006 to today, so another 17 years, if my math is correct, uh, we're having similar conversations about the role of, for instance, real-world evidence, <clears throat> evidence generated from digital health technologies, and, and the list goes on. And the common denominator, <clears throat> excuse me, is that they all relate to evidence generation. The relationship between the FDA and CMS, in my mind, is really defined in large part by the differences in how they use evidence, whether the evidence is sufficient for the decision they need to make, i.e. to support their perspective um, on the decision they need to take. And uh, even though they are indeed both federal health agencies to, to serve and promote public health, uh, the the issue of evidence generation is is really one that I think distinguishes the two two agencies. And as uh, you and I were talking just before the podcast started, uh, there there has been a lot of uh, news and press lately about um, the history of the recent history of biologic therapies for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and this year, we saw the FDA take an accelerated approval decision for a monoclonal antibody based on the surrogate endpoint of amyloid 
uh, plaque reduction in the brain. But Medicare um, only provided coverage for those patients who were enrolled in a registry or clinical trial uh, that was designed to the standards outlined by CMS. <clears throat> and national coverage for the Medicare population uh, was deferred until full approval on, on, the, on the clinical endpoints, such as cognition. Um, and that full approval needed to be a randomized controlled trial so that the risk-benefit profile of the new therapy was uh, firmly established. And uh, in, I think, just the past few days, that full approval has has occurred, um, and, and Medicare has announced that they would uh, provide full coverage for uh, the Alzheimer's uh, biologic therapy. So this is, I think, a very uh, timely example of how evidence generation between FDA and the sponsor <clears throat> then leads to certain decisions taken by uh, Medicare, whether it's a condition, uh, sort of a conditional or uh, coverage with evidence type of uh, reimbursement decision or a full reimbursement decision because the sponsor has now obtained a full approval from the FDA. Very good, very good. So, I mean, the, the, the time is running, so I would maybe just uh, go probably to our last question. And, I mean, you, you have a lot of experience, um, as you have as well just, uh, let's say, told us as well in the last couple of minutes, um, especially in the U.S. So maybe we want to focus here a bit on the U.S., uh, yes, on the US FDA and maybe the future. Where would you or do you think you would see the FDA in 10 years from now? Yeah. So, I mean, I think all health authorities are at the margin dealing with different issues. And um, what I would say is for the FDA, you know, I, th I think the appropriateness of single arm studies for oncology um, accelerated approval is something that has been a hot topic this year um, specifically. And, and I I think it'll take a few years to sort out. Uh, and that, as I said, I'm talking specifically about oncology. That's where I spend my time primarily. Uh, it, it will take some time to tease out what is the right um, registrational path um, to, to secure uh, FDA approval in the U.S. for an oncology therapeutic. And uh, on top of that, and maybe looking more long-term, five, 10 years uh, down the road, I I think it's it's technological innovation that, in my mind, is what takes any regulatory agency, including the FDA, down a certain path where they and and determines where they'll end up in ten years. So um, the role of artificial intelligence and in product development, and perhaps even in technology assessment. Is, is something that is still being defined as, as we speak. And so I think that the FDA will, will need to devote a lot of time to understanding not just the potential uh, utility of, of artificial intelligence or product development, but possibly even regulation, and also to think about the misuse of artificial intelligence and how to avoid that. And so defining some guardrails uh, that prevent the misuse of that technology. 
I think uh, digital health technologies is something that has been an ongoing area of interest for regulators like the FDA. And I think even five, 10 years from now, we will still be trying to optimize how to better integrate um, such technologies into product development um, and, and what level of regulatory oversight is is required. Um, so, you know, remote data collection, for instance, do patients have to come into a clinical trial site to capture information um, or can that be done through digital health technologies, wearable devices, that sort of thing? This, this has been, as you know, something that's been discussed for a number of years, but it, it still feels like there's an enormous amount of burden to patients when they participate in clinical trials because so much has to be done in person even today. So, so at the end of the day, I, I think where, where FDA and, and other agencies will land uh, a decade from now will be determined by the innovation and, and technologies. And um, I, I don't know where, where all that innovation will occur. Uh, maybe it's for new disease areas, or as I said, uh, digital health technologies, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um those sorts of things yeah i think that's uh that's a good kind of outlook and i think uh, it corresponds to i think what we see across the industry uh i think especially obviously on the focus on on digital health in in a very broad sense so uh yeah thanks a lot jamie it was really great to listen to you i think a lot of great insights especially in the combination between regulatory and the payer side and and i'm sure this will not be the last episode together because I think there are a lot of more things we could, let's say, jointly discuss. Thanks a lot for your insight, Jamie. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Stefan. It's been a real pleasure and always enjoy discussing these topics with you. Take care. That was an episode of MAP, the market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. Map is available every second week with a new episode, so watch out. And in case you might have questions, contact me directly and or visit our website on www.marketaccess-pricingstrategy.de.